Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host, Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Yemen has been shattered by its civil war, now going on its sixth year, with the grim statistics continuing to grow, with over 112,000 people killed and 24 million people in desperate need of humanitarian help. Joining the crisis next door for an in-depth look into the tragedy of Yemen is Fatima Al-Azrar, non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. From 2006 to 2012, she worked as an advisor for the Embassy of Yemen in Washington, D.C., Fatima, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. Thank you, Jason, for having me. Fatima, ceasefires have proven futile as Yemen remains caught in the crossfire of regional powers, Iran and Saudi Arabia. The war has been dragging on in Yemen, and now COVID-19 has entered into that equation. How has that affected, if at all, the fighting or diplomatic efforts in Yemen? Well, Jason, you know, for the past six years um, since the Iran-backed Houthis have taken over Yemen and pushed the um, government of Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi out of the picture, um, yes, there we were not able, or Yemenis have not been able to find a solution to this crisis. And part of the problem is, you know, everybody thinks that they are right. So um, the government in exile in Riyadh, the government of Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi, um, has entered this alliance with Saudi Arabia uh, and uh, other members of the coalition and then uh, United Arab Emirates and tried to push the Houthis uh, back. And at that time, the Houthis were allied with former President Ali Abdullah Saleh. So the first thing that you, you notice is that there are so many actors in this Yemeni conflict. And, you know, the more actors that there are, the more difficult that it is to bring about a, um, a, a a peaceful resolution to this conflict because it it keeps getting complicated with the with the effort, with the with the involvement of multiple actors. The United Nations is trying to sponsor uh, a peace agreement, but as you have mentioned, it had repeatedly failed. And with COVID nineteen at the moment, uh, you know. I think the problem is that um, there is no specific authority 
uh, in Yemen that is in control of one unified plan for the whole country. So you see COVID-19 in Houthi areas being dealt with completely differently than in other areas that are controlled by the government. And to add to this uh, is a new complication where there are areas that are under coalition's control, um, but have also been uh, fallen into um, local local actors uh, because the government is outside of the country. So you have this southern transitional uh, movement that wants to reclaim governance of south of the country. So, you know, we don't have one unified COVID-19 strategy. You don't have the capacity all across. And when you have international organizations such as the United Nations or smaller NGOs, they basically have, you know, different capacities across all of these regions and um, just different systems and challenges that they're facing at each. If I would take, for example, you know, the Houthi uh, controlled areas, the Houthis have suppressed information on COVID-19 and somewhat, you know, misled people really, telling them that, um, telling people under their control that, this is a crisis that has been exaggerated all over the world and that, you know, they don't really need to know if they have COVID-19 um, and, you know, because that somehow is going to affect their morale. So they've decided to, you know, I think up till this date, um, Houthis only disclo disclosed four cases when in reality, you know, the, the, funerals in Yemen are just happening on a daily basis in areas under their control of amounts, you know, if, if, you know, hundreds of people dying per day. So it's estimated that there's a real big crisis there that the Houthis are not managing effectively. Um, and of course, this is happening on top of other crises, such as, you know, cholera, cholera season is coming soon, and um, other diseases that they're struggling with. And in, in rebel-controlled uh, territories and in, in the Southern Transitional Council or uh, in the government, the estimate is around, you know, in the thousands of, of, infect, of infected. Um, they are being a little bit transparent about it, but then you have the hospitals who just do not, are not equipped with sufficient um, uh, equipment, you know, the, the personal protection equipment for the, the doctors, the nurses. Up till now, it, it's estimated that about 80 Yemeni doctors have died from COVID-19. So, you know, there is just no, there's a, like the, the, the Yemeni health infrastructure is already really frail. It's almost non-existent. And with, you know, with the conflict, this is just amplified, you know, 10 times uh, more. So it's, it's really a terrible situation uh, at, at the moment that I don't think that, um, you know, I, I don't think that it's going to be solved easily. And I know that the United Nations is um, trying hard to facilitate uh, some type of an agreement. But what, what we're seeing is just like really small measures um, that are not reassuring for Yemeni people nationwide. The United Nations has been pushing a two-party mediation as a path to peace. Why has that come up short? I mean, I guess it's, it's probably the, the, the same reasons I've explained before, is that um, each, each party that's a conflict is extremely intransigent and think that 
they um, that they are right, and just the ability to compromise is extremely limited. Um, I think the the UN envoy, Mr. Martin Griffith, has tried his best to speak to all parties, um, to the the Iran Iran-backed Houthis, and um, try to build confidence between these parties. But where things fall short is really the implementation. Um, to you know, a lot of the assumptions that he has made was based on goodwill between the parties, and that goodwill is really non-existent. Um, and uh, I think that you know, the Houthis um, try to use the UN envoy as a person that they could extract more concessions from, uh, and from the Yemeni government side, um, they feel that the UN envoy should legitimize their existence and there comes just a constant clash uh, um, uh, in, in that direction that makes that makes peace really you know difficult to attain but um, you know uh, I, I think that the I think that the UN will continue to run into to run into problems in implementing peace in Yemen because it's really not taking into account so many of the um, local uh, factors in the conflict and, and local sensitivities, um, it, is, it is very difficult to go on uh, and, and ask people to live in peace when, you know, there are guns that are living amongst these people, when people are being recruited by the militias, uh, when, um, uh, you know, just, just, they're deprived of, um, you know, basic basic services, but also human rights um, at the same time. Uh, people who speak up, and especially in Houthi areas, uh, are often, um, uh, you know, intimidated, uh, sent to jail. There's a you know, a large number of of uh, journalists who have been. Uh, detained, and we saw the United States government, the EU, has uh, recently um, uh, issued calls to just respect of, um, the, the freedom of expression, uh, and especially of the journalists who speak up against the circumstances that they're living in. So, you know, part of the problem is there is there is no environment that is conducive for for just that political change from the the local level and i think any peace process need to keep in mind the local complexities uh, of yemen and just try to um uh you know look look at not just the humanitarian crisis but you know the human rights catastrophes that are happening in Yemen and as well as you know the the um, the freedoms that that people should be afforded um, in order to come into uh, peace and try to tackle issues of reconciliation I, I think the common narrative at least globally when it comes to Yemen is that the Houthis have been backed by Iran and the Saudis back, back the Yemeni government but as you mentioned it's very different on the ground and there are localized conflicts that make it much more complicated than it appears on the surface. Do those local groups make a re-centralized government in Sana'a even more difficult? Would they be willing to cede some of their autonomy for a centralized government? That's the hope. That's what the United Nations is trying to achieve. Um, but the experience hasn't been so 
um, encouraging in the past. So when the Houthis had allied with President Ali Abdullah Saleh to attain power and overthrow the government of Abdurrabu al-Mansur Hadi, what they did was um, they allied with Saleh for a brief amount of time. And, and Saleh had um, control over you know, the majority of institutions. He has been president of Yemen for the past 30 years almost. Um, but what he saw is that his power was waning and that his political party, the General People's Congress, was somewhat being pushed um, and marginalized by the rebels. Um, that sparked conflict between Ali Abdullah Saleh and the Houthis back in 2017, which ended up with uh, Saleh's death by the Houthis. So, you know, Saleh, who was a one-time ally for the Houthi, and it's, you know, it's um, it's ironic because also Saleh was a former enemy of the Houthi before that. Um, uh, Houthis have claimed that uh, their entire existence was based on the fact that Saleh was a corrupt uh, president of Yemen and that they wanted to overthrow him. But of course, when they had the opportunity to ally with him, they did. And when they had the opportunity to kill him, they did. So the, the idea here is that there is this rebellious men mentality that is extremely dangerous and um, uh, just thrives on, on chaos and instability. And then the other assumption is that um, Iran is a major instigator and that it thrives in instability and chaos. So what benefit would Iran have if um, things are actually normalized in Yemen? As long as this conflict is sustained, uh, um, Iran is able to launch missiles um, into Saudi territory using Houthis or otherwise. Um, it has been, um, the Houthis have been, you know, have had drones which are beyond their capacities. These are a group of, the Houthis are just a group of, of um, uh, people who descended from really underdeveloped regions in Yemen. So uh, it's just really hard to think about them as as an entity that can acquire these sophisticated uh, weapons, if not for foreign help. So, you know, as, as, as their existence definitely, definitely benefits um, uh, Iran and Iran's destabilizing agenda in the Middle East. And that's just quite unfortunate because um, it's not one of the things that's often discussed in, 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 um, in discussing the Yemeni crisis. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the civil war in Yemen with Fatima Al-Azrar, non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. Houthis have steadily gained ground against the government. Would you say that most, if not all of that credit, would go to Iran for backing the rebels? That's a very complex issue. I think both Iran and the Houthis have, um, you know, they have they have mutual interests and they're working really really well together. Um, so the Houthis have that ambition to um, to govern the country, to uh, be the sole authority in the country, and Iran has given them the means to do it. But uh, what is really noticeable is that 
um, this this year in particular, the Houthis were able to gain grounds in areas that are close to the Saudi border and areas that have been under the control of the Yemeni government uh, throughout this conflict. These areas are major opposition areas to the Houthis, um, which are north of Yemen. It's in Al-Jawf and Ma'rib. They enjoy large Saudi support. Um, just completely different um, identity, not identity, but maybe um, uh, political identity. It's a completely different political identity than that from the Houthis. Of course, there are some Houthi loyalists who are there in that area, but not enough um, that would make them uh, um, have any type of support in these areas. And uh, what's also distinct is that the city of Ma'rib that Houthis are currently trying to reclaim has about 3 million um, internally displaced Yemenis who have left their areas um, uh, just running away from the Houthis. So to see these populations being threatened at this time, after six years of war for the first time in, in, this, in this entire duration of the conflict is really concerning. And it's happening after uh, uh, you know, many indicators. The first was the death of, of Qasem Soleimani. Uh, and I think the death of Qasem Soleimani has maybe, um, or most certainly ignited Iran's, uh, um, uh, Iran's appetite for revenge and the easiest place for it to do so was really in Yemen. And um, this is again, not something that uh, many experts have focused on because the the role of Iran in Yemen is often, um, you know, just just n not discussed as as such because Iran continues to deny uh, its involvement in arming the Houthis. But I think we shouldn't be really taking that for granted, and we should challenge we should challenge what the Iranians are saying about their involvement in Yemen and just look at their track record and, and, and what's, what's happening there. Several of Saudi Arabia's Western allies have criticized Riyadh for what they've called indiscriminate airstrikes in Yemen that have caused massive civilian casualties. Has that criticism affected Saudi Arabia's support for Yemen in this war? Uh, you think it did. Uh, I mean, it's quite unfortunate that for the past six years, this pattern has not changed and uh, civilian targets are continuing to be, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, hit by Saudi Arabia. And um, we we haven't, you know, there has been probably some type of, of improvement but not full improvement that would completely shield people from the devastating impact of these airstrikes. So um, I think Saudi Arabia has not necessarily completely changed its pattern uh, because ultimately what the Saudis are trying to do is protect their borders from any type of attack that's that's coming uh, into their territory. Some of the time, the information that they get and the intelligence from uh, from the ground is faulty and it and it leads to, you know, these types of catastrophic deaths that uh, impact their credibility. Uh, and frankly, it also um, uh, uh, impacts the legitimacy of uh, President Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi, who continues to receive support from Saudi Arabia. So, you know, and it, it further 
complicates the war in Yemen and adds another layer of grievance. Um, so, you know, f for for their sake and and for Yemeni's sake, there needs to be, uh, um, uh, you know, just a, a, a peace agreement that would, um, uh, you know, look look at not just stopping the conflict within Yemen, but also protecting Saudi, because I think that is the, the major reason why Saudi continues to launch airstrikes on Yemen. And, you know, these guarantees have to be given to Yemeni people and also Saudi Arabia um, that continues to feel that it is being targeted indirectly by Iran. Otherwise, you know, Yemen was going to be stuck in this vicious circle and citizens and civilians are just going to be wrongfully targeted. Do you think peace in Yemen is a goal for Saudi Arabia or Iran, or do you think those two arch enemies are content with a proxy war? Um, I think I think peace in Yemen is a goal for uh, Yemenis. It's a goal for Saudi Arabia as well, because it has spent so much money uh, uh, backing the Yemeni government. It has spent so much money backing the opposition, so much money backing, you know, also like buying weapons and um, uh, getting involved in a war where it is visibly losing. So um, for the Saudis, they're waiting for that opportunity. But the problem is that the Iran is not giving the green light for that. Um, and and Iran is just being paying lip service to the entire thing because it it serves its interests to drain Saudi support as resources. It serves its interests to say that look, Saudi is is a an ally of the United States, and this is what the U.S. and Saudi are doing in Yemen, and that has been the story for the past six years. That has you know even garnered the Houthis some sympathies in the international community, uh, which is extremely unfortunate. Um, because the Houthis are committing egregious violations inside the country against all of their opponents. So um, the, the peace, peace does not look like it's, it's going to benefit um, Iran at the, at the time. Um, and for the Houthis, it, they haven't demonstrated that power sharing or peace is something that they want to attain. However, um, to be fair, um, they have submitted a vision for a peace uh, to the United Nations, which the UN envoy has taken into account. And I think that within that vision is, um, uh, you know, just it's not necessarily a power sharing vision, but it's a vision where they need to be recognized as the de facto authority um, in order for them to uh, um, have any type of um, uh, of confidence building measures and, and trust with, with the Yemeni government. So um, I think they are keen on um, just being seen as the sole legitimate governing authority in, in, in Yemen. They want to speak to other parties, but as long as they hold um, the reins of power. So they probably want a system that is a little bit similar to one that Iran has, where you have um, a president and a parliament, but ultimately you have a supreme leader like Abdel Malik al Houthi, um, uh, who's a little bit like Khamenei, and you know, just a just a, a puppet parliament and a you know just a structure that supports you know their their sectarian uh, vision for Yemen. And I, unfortunately, that is I feel is incompatible with the constitution. So. 
with the Yemeni constitution. So there will have to be a lot of um, uh, work from the UN envoy to try to bring everybody to that cohesive vision for a stable, peaceful Yemen where all of the parties internally can reconcile. Fatima, Yemen followed the path of other Middle Eastern countries like Syria during the Arab Spring with social and economic grievances fueling a popular uprising and then war. How critical are these grievances for peace in Yemen and are they even being addressed? Um, That's a really good question. Um, You know, core conflict grievances um, are not being addressed through this political process. I don't think so. Um, You know, maybe the issue of political power and power sharing is, but the things that have fueled this conflict, you know, basically it's an an, an unequal distribution of political power, uh, which we see today um, uh, concentrated in, in the hands of multiple authorities in Yemen. Uh, each think that um, you know they're they're each think that they're they're the only ones who are representative of of uh, uh, of these political uh, entities and and um, that they are uh, the better suited for power. So be it the Houthis in the north or uh, President Hadi group or the Southern Transitional Council. And unfortunately, the United Nations is not um, is kind of like not flexible enough to bring about a peace plan that would uh, facilitate a power sharing uh, among these political actors. So that is that is one issue. The other grievance is sort of. Um, uh, concentrated or, or, or could be seen in the unequal service delivery across the country, where certain localities um, that have wealth and resources are often deprived of it. Um, you know, you see areas in the South, for example, that had had um, wealth in gas and oil resources are being some of the most disenfranchised communities at the moment. Um, you know, we, we talked about COVID-19 and what's really heartbreaking is that in uh, in in uh, just a couple of months ago in May, there has been torrential rainfall um, and and floods in in Aden, in you know what was formerly a capital of, of South Yemen, and uh, these floods have just you know um, complicated uh, the issue um, and and helped in spreading disease. Um, So there was dengue fever, there was cholera, there was also other diseases that that people saw uh, as a result of these floods. And and this is on top of a COVID-19 crisis. So people feel that the state has not really provided them with the services needed and that um, they just, you know, uh, live their lives as citizens, but without, you know, doing doing their best for their country, but the country is not giving anything back. So they had, in, you know, systematic injustice and equality for all of that time. And I don't want to just single out the South, but, you know, other, other cities like Hodeida, it is one of the biggest uh, um, ports of Yemen where all the humanitarian assistance come comes through that port. Oil shipments come through that port. And it's the people of Hodeida are... Um, the most disadvantaged in Yemen, you know, the, the pictures of of the dying children and, you know, skeleton-like human being that we saw, they're coming from Hadeda. So, uh, you know, the Houthi authorities um, throughout 
this conflict have just conveniently neglected them and you know used them almost as a prop for the international community to say hey this is the consequence of of a of a us sponsored war and you know that's extremely unfortunate because as i mentioned like you know the humanitarian assistance comes through their port so um is, are these being addressed through the UN process? Unfortunately not. And unless these issues, unless the grievances that the people of Yemen have and also the political elites have are being addressed, this cycle of violence is going to continue. It is often said that the night is darkest right before dawn, and it certainly appears to be the case right now. We can only hope that dawn does appear soon on the horizon for Yemen. Fatima, thank you very much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me. We've been joined by Fatima Al-Azrar, non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. From 2006 to 2012, she worked as an advisor for the Embassy of Yemen in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. 